This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Israel's war in Gaza has mobilised Yemen's Houthi rebels to conduct missile attacks on shipping vessels traversing the Red Sea, sending a shockwave through the global shipping sector. But it's not just the Red Sea troubles that are impacting the sector at present. Alex Mills is an international trade and maritime law expert based in London, and they said it was possible other countries and groups might take inspiration from the Houthis. Alex, thank you for joining us. Is this true? Yes, 100%. I think what we're seeing in the Red Sea is very easily used as a template elsewhere. As I said, this is the Houthis kind of providing a testing ground for any other actor who might have access to drones or ballistic missiles or just be looking to stir up uh, a bit of chaos, I guess. Uh, The South China Sea especially is I would say a bit more difficult even because of due to the coral reefs and the structures of the islands in that area and the heat and hotly disputed claims over where uh, your economic zones begin and end, it becomes very difficult very quickly for you to reroute your ships. You can't really make the option of, oh, we'll just go around the Cape in this sense. You're going to have to make massive changes to shipping. You're going to have to really look through how else you're going to do it. Your ship might be too big, you're going to have to make massive changes. And this is one third of international trade. This isn't just for New Zealand. This is the main route between Asia and the rest of the world. So as soon as you start to cut that down or clamp that down, uh, you're going to see some major impacts. Mm -hmm. Do you think the shipping industry as it is, is prepared adequately for these sort of black swan events that seem to be happening quite a bit? (laughs) I think the shipping industry, for all it's worth, has been doing quite a lot of adjustment in the emissions space, for sure. Um, So we have the IMO Sulfur 2020 emissions rule, which came in recently, and this work on kind of greener shipping. So that doesn't really solve the geopolitical crisis, but makes that when it does happen, we, you know, the shipping industry is working really hard to make sure that they are being greener. (laughs) So if the chaos does happen, it's not the emissions, it's not the climate that's going to suffer from this, um, from their perspective. I think also one of the wonderful things I've been seeing out of the industry is a real movement in tech and how to track and trace um, quite a lot of their ships, which is very, very useful from a business perspective, because at the moment you put a good on a ship, you hope it gets to the point that it's going to get. You might get a notification or an email at some point saying we're slightly delayed, um, but that's about it. There are so many wonderful tech options coming out of the industry at the moment and from third parties and fintechs who are looking to explore how you can track a good from production to delivery. And as soon as you can track that, you can better make insurance claims. You know your legal rights. You know where your item is. You can update your customer. You can provide better services. Um, And it makes you also, you know, from the emission side, you can track it from birth to death type thing. And I think that's incredible and wonderful and something that 
makes a real impact for businesses so that when things like this do happen, firms can turn around and say, here's the, here's the information we have on your goods. They're lost or they're not lost. Here's the insurance claim you can make um, and just makes, makes functioning a lot easier yeah. uh, for firms. Has that come out of COVID disruption? Because, of course, that caused a massive um, yeah, disruption to that sector. Yeah, it's been, it's been a bit half and half. So the shipping industry is very old and outdated. Uh, it ha- still uses paper bills of lading quite often uh, so that everybody has to sign. It still uses paper contracts. Um, and there's been a steady increase over the last five to ten years to begin to use electronic bills of lading and electronic tracking. COVID obviously kind of provided a little pressure to continue to do that. But also, if you're looking in a high inflationary world where you have geopolitical incidences like this, you're looking to lower your insurance rates, you're looking to offer better deals for your customers, you should be looking at electronic and digital solutions, which are cheaper. Uh, Ports are starting to catch on. So countries are really investing in kind of port infrastructure and port technology that might solidify this. In the UK, we have the electronic um, trading bills uh, act now, I believe. I think it's been signed in um, where you now have to or have the option to making all of your trade documents electronic and digital. And as soon as you start to encourage that innovation and start to support it, uh, whether that's through policy or investment or just providing kind of fintech sandboxes where you can test this out and you lower the cost of that innovation and open that innovation more widely, it will catch on. It is easier. It will make everything better. (laughs) So Alex, just finally, if you were speaking to a New Zealand exporter and, and that person was looking ahead to 2024, what would you kind of be pointing up to that person about what they have to bear in mind when they're sending goods to the other end of the world? So I think there's two big issues that would definitely be worth watching. One is your climate change emissions angle of things. Um, this is not only your emissions for how you're shipping things to Europe, which is including an ETS, or other countries which are creating an emission trading schemes, but it's also being aware of the impact that climate change can have on those shipments. Um, the Panama Canal, for instance, is currently basically shut down due to a drought. So you can't get through the Panama Canal at the moment. And what do you do when that happens? So kind of looking ahead and saying, where could you know, climate change is a fact of life now so how are we impact how will that impact our shipping and where do we go i think the other side to think about this as you're looking forward to it and for the next year is where can you incorporate easy innovation or innovation to make uh your your shipping and your transport easier for you easier for your firms that you're working with how how do you make that happen And that may not be a one-year solution, but it's something to start testing out. You can run side by side, whether it's a digital bill of lading as well as a paper one as a backup, just kind of working with that. And I think those two things are ones to watch out for. I think the geopolitical situation isn't going to get any easier. Um, If anything, we've got 64 countries who have elections coming up. It's going to get even more challenging. Um, Policymakers are going to be using this to make points about onshoring and friendshoring, but that's just not practical for everybody. Um, it's, it's not reasonable either. 
and continuing to make that case to policymakers and to others of saying, you know, the solution isn't to look inward and to close ourselves off. The solution is to work together and ensure that we have an international trade that supports our economy and supports others um, and it ensures the best prices, right? That's, that's how you get it. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Worker Protection Act 2023 came into force while we were all at the beach this January. I'm joined by Legal Vision Senior Associate Ruby Mills from Tauranga to discuss the purpose of the new law and what key changes we can expect to see. And Ruby, look, can we begin by just getting you to um, talk talk to us a bit about this um, large-scale operation that was undertaken by the Labour Inspectorate last year and how that has fed into these changes? Thank you. Yeah, so there was a, um, a large-scale operation that was undertaken in Auckland uh, November last year. So that was involving um, a compliance check around 85 businesses in Auckland, which is quite a substantive amount. Um, it ultimately, it was a three-day operation and it was carried out by the Immigration Compliance and Investigations and the Labour Inspectorate. So this followed on from a number of formal complaints that had been lodged um, in particular against the retail and hospitality businesses um, spread, spread across Auckland. So the, the interesting part here is really the comments made by Simon Humphreys, who is the Head of Compliance and Enforcement Labour Inspectorate. Um, and those ultimately were that they take migrant exploitation very seriously and the operation was a tangible um, example of the commitment to follow up on any alleged breaches. So right. uh, alongside the, sorry, yeah. Well, I was just going to get, uh, get you to say, so what is the purpose then of, of the new Act and, and what are some of the key changes that the, the market can expect to see? Yep, so the Act obviously follows on and it shows that emphasis um, in this area and it really is just to protect our, our workers. Um, so this crackdown and by introducing an Act really shows you know the consequences for employers if they don't um, adhere to it. So ultimately um, it came after um, a raft of sort of changes to a, from a review um, and this review was carried out in 2020 so there's obviously been some substantial period since the act has been put in place but ultimately um, the key changes and probably the most important one is that employers who are unable to immediately um, comply with a labour inspector's requirement to supply copies of um, or produce records um, must meet requirements within 10 working days so any failure to comply with this request um, can result in an infringement notice and if you know a offences um, carry penalties, monetary penalties. So this is a, a quite a big change. Um, another one to, to really point out is that employers can be published if they are convicted of any immigration offence, um, which is, you know, a, a really key point for employers. Obviously, that's not something that you, any employer would want to happen and they can also be published on the stand down list. So this would prohibit um, those employers from supporting visa applications for migrant workers um, for the, that duration of a stand down period. And sort of uh, lastly, another key point is um, they can be disqualified uh, from managing or directing a company. So ultimately, this really will protect um, any sort of corporate structures who leverage, you know, a company structure um, to avoid consequences and any kind of detection. Um, and, you know, not being able to do so will try and really stop that um, offending from occurring. 
And speaking of um, being published, uh, there has been an ERA decision that, that illustrates this problem. Can you tell us a bit about that case? Yeah, sure. So um, this case was quite an interesting one and again involving a Labour Inspector um, review. So ultimately what happened here in the case of Labour Inspector and Luxme Narayan Restaurant Limited. So this involved a restaurant manager um, who ultimately was awarded quite a substantial stump sum from his employer and he was basically awarded $40,000 in arrears and penalties. And so ultimately it involved a raft of um sort of unlawful deductions, minimum wage breaches, um, holiday and leave arrears and interest was applied on top of those. So the key here, and I think a focus was again, um, Simon Humphreys did comment on this and this case in particular emphasised that employers really need to ensure um, that they stick to what was agreed during the visa approval process. Um, so in terms of their minimum wage, their hours and things like that. And if they don't, you know, there is that risk that they could be penalised. And um, here it just sort of emphasised again after he was awarded those amounts um, that there was just no place for that kind of dishonest and unlawful behaviour in New Zealand. And this ties in with the Act and those um, inspections. Yeah, look, you know, it- as, as recently as uh, on the TV news this week, we've seen uh, cases of extreme migrant exploitation. In your view, what more could be done uh, to prevent against this kind of thing? Look, I think it, uh, from my perspective, it's just that awareness and these kind of cases and the emphasis from any kind of, um, you know, head of compliance, Labor inspector, those comments really bring the general public's awareness and New Zealand as a nation. Um, and I think it, it needs to be something that we just, it's just not tolerated. And the Act you know, assist that from a legal perspective, but I think from a practical perspective, it's that it's that mindset that we just, we cannot treat employees like this. Um, we cannot treat workers like this and it, and it just can't happen. And these penalties, um, they really show, you know, there, has, there is a big uh, implication for employers if this is carried on. Ruby Mills from Legal Vision, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. When the soap manufacturing business she worked for came up for sale, Sophie Cooper took a leap of faith. Now her business, Anihana, has expanded throughout the country and overseas. Sophie joins me now to talk about her company. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, thanks for having me. Why don't you tell me a wee bit about how your business started? Uh, it was just over seven years ago and I was working um, as a florist um, but my boss had a soap manufacturing business. Um, she wanted to sell that business to concentrate on retail um, so I jokingly went home to my husband said should we buy it? Uh, yeah, a few months later uh, we had a new baby because I was eight months pregnant at the time too and also a new business. Oh my goodness. So tell me a wee bit about I suppose becoming a mother and a mother to a new business as well. Um, extremely stressful. <laughs> it was hard. Um, not going to lie. I didn't really know how to run a business or be a new mum. So kind of learning those two two roles at the same time. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, it was good. It was fun busy but very stressful (laughs) and um you've recently launched into target and walmart in the u.s tell me a wee bit about that yeah yeah um so the opportunities kind of came to us um we launched in australia and we weren't planning to launch in the u.s so quickly um but the opportunity came up and we just couldn't really say no um target um we started with um i think three four hundred stores 
um, and then it increased to five, six hundred. We're about to go into sixteen hundred in February next year. Um, and then in the middle of that, Walmart actually reached out to us via Instagram message. Um, and yeah, it, we we had about my husband flew over there, had the had the meeting, and we had about six and nine months to make the pipe fill and ship it over. And yeah, we're in over four thousand stores there now, as of September. Wow! Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And um, what's been the biggest lesson you've learned from expanding overseas? Um, we we have always been told to go regional, not national, straight away. Um, I think that's really good advice for the US if you don't have the cash to support it. Um, cash flow was super challenging, like it was hard um, just with the initial inventory um, pipe fills. Um, yeah, I would say, yeah, just being able to scale the product, get enough product over there and have the cash to support it has been our biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. And did you have a moment where you sort of realised that uh, this was a viable business? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I've always believed in the products. I love them so much. Um, and I think since our rebrand to the new packaging, it's kind of gone from me begging retailers um, to retailers approaching us. Um, it could be my husband's sales skills, but <laughs> um, I think it's a bit of both and the packaging that really ref- reflects our brand mm-hmm. and values. And um, yeah, it still blows my mind that it's the same same product, just different packaging, but it's really taken taken off. And what's been the biggest lesson that you've learned of your journey? Um, biggest lesson... Probably don't launch into massive markets at the same time, <laughs> unless you. Yeah, it's quite stressful. You just add put that added pressure on yourself. Um, we're just playing catch up now, so we're being a lot more planned and thought out on our next market. Um, make sure you've got a good runway, cash in the bank if mm-hmm. you're going to do that, um, and don't. Yeah, always ask for help. New Zealand businesses are awesome and. Um, they're always happy to answer any questions and help each other out so yeah it's a great community isn't it yeah and um what is next for you have you got new markets in mind what any goals you're working towards Um, new products um so i now have a lot more time to concentrate on um mpd um which is my happy place i get to be creative again um we haven't had time or um, resources to launch any new products until now um, so we've got uh, working on a three-year pipeline with lots of exciting innovative ideas um, new markets we're we're looking at next ones we'd have big growth plans so we definitely want to keep growing quickly maybe not as quick as we have done so far um, but yeah we're possibly Asia UK Europe but yeah we're just taking our time and learning as much as we can about those markets now mm-hmm. and what have been the biggest challenges that you've overcome a lot of product our products are still very handmade and they're going to remain as kind of that artisanal range um, so it's kind of trying to find that balance between handmade and scalable um, so we can keep growing mm-hmm. yeah and have you found the industry's become a lot more competitive in recent years everyone wants to get into the game <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think we're quite lucky though because we do have quite a few unique products. Um, I think our products are do have a point of difference and are unique. We're not just a regular soap, I guess. Um, and our products like shower steamers is not really anything out there like that. Um, 
solid hair care is definitely getting a lot more competitive, but I, I do think that's a good thing when you think of how many plastic bottle variants there are. Um, so having the option out there is always a good thing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Inflation has fallen to 4.7%, but domestic inflation remains sticky. With us is ANZ economist Henry Russell. So, Henry, that headline figure looks good, but delving a bit deeper, domestic inflation still quite high. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing the same theme that we have over past quarters and that a lot of the disinflation or the progress that the Reserve Bank's made, that's coming through on the tradable side and largely um, imported component and much more volatile that they don't have a lot of influence over. In today's numbers, they did get an upward surprise on the domestic component of inflation. And while that will concern them, um, there was evidence of progress across the rest of the release that should keep them on the sidelines in February, particularly across the core measures, which took a meaningful step down. What's happening domestically? I see rents, construction costs. Yeah, rents are a very persistent component of inflation. Um, That largely reflects the surge in migration we've seen. And we did see a pickup in construction costs in the quarter as well. But a lot of the domestic-driven inflation is stemming from services components, which tend to be sticky. But that's not to say that we shouldn't see progress in those areas. We have seen the labour market deteriorate uh, recently, and wage growth is starting to ease. And when we think about the outlook for domestic inflation in particular across the year ahead, we are confident that disinflation inflation will continue. Um, That reflects the weakness in demand or economic activity more broadly we saw last year and in the labour market that I've mentioned. So there's there's certainly progress and we we do think the Reserve Bank's going to be in a position to, to start cutting the OCR from August this year. Do you think inflation will fall back into that target band maybe at the high end this year? Yeah, so on our current forecasts, um, we, we see the, the we see inflation back in the 1% to 3% target band by the September quarter of this year. Look, a lot still needs to go right for that to happen, and it only takes to, to look at the news recently and see what's happening in the Red Sea. Uh, shipping costs have more than doubled since the start of this year alone, and that's likely to add to inflation pressures. And while we have, well, the Reserve Bank has received a pretty healthy dividend from the global inflation story. Um, there's always risks. Um, there's risk both sides in that, on that basis, and they'll be con- cautious of that before they, they, they choose to move um, forward with cutting interest rates. And a, a lower domestic inflation starting point will be one of those things that they're looking for. Mm. How does the Monetary Policy Committee read today's data when they're around the table next month? Well, they did at the November uh, monetary policy statement. Uh, the Monetary Policy Committee did signal they have very little tolerance for upward inflation surprises. So, despite the offset on the tradable side today, that st- that stickiness or uh, of domestic inflation will be a concern to them. But we we don't think that's going to be enough to get them over the line in February. I mean, they, they, since since the November NPS, we've seen uh, GDP come in much weaker and signalling economic activity is is is, is clearly slowing and and so, so too in the labour market. But what, what, what the Reserve Bank's seen so far is that they are gaining traction and the transmission from high interest rates to, to weak demand across the economy has clearly occurred. And we are now starting to see signs that the transmission from weak demand into lower inflation is occurring as well. It's probably occurring a little slower than they would have, would have liked to have seen, but we don't think that's mm. going to be enough to get them to increase interest rates in February. 
So their language next month can be a little bit softer than November? Um, I, we, we, we tend to think that they'll, they'll keep a pretty hawkish tone um, come yeah. February. And we do actually hear from the Reserve Bank's chief economist on the 30th of, of January, um, who will provide comments on, on data development since the MPS. And um, the market, in particular offshore players, have have, have um, said that they they think that's that's an opportunity for the Reserve Bank to take a more dovish tilt. And look, that's mm. not how we see things. We still see there's clear risks that inflation is not slowing as fast as the Reserve Bank would like, and they won't want to come out too dovish and change their messaging because that brings mm. the risk that financial conditions could ease more than they'd like. And you know, with momentum in the housing market, while it's not. It's not particularly strong at the moment. If financial conditions ease and mortgage rates fall, that could bring some momentum that could spill over into demand more broadly across the economy at a time where they continue to they need to continue to see restraint on demand. What are the chances of a hike next month? Um, I'd probably put it at around five percent. You can never rule it out five to ten percent, but look, it's not our central scenario. We'll wait and see what the rest of the data brings before the NPS. Obviously, we we get a November, I mean the December quarter labour market data as well, and that is absolutely going to be key. There, both we and the Reserve Bank are expecting to see further loosening in the labour market, with the unemployment rate on our forecast shifting up to 4.3%. Look, last year we we stated that we think the low the labour market is no longer inflationary, and that is one of the preconditions for core disinflation and we're starting to see that in the numbers today and so we think there's enough evidence there um, to keep the Reserve Bank on the sidelines but they are going to want to stay hawkish and we don't think they're going to give the market um, uh, they're not going to give the market much lead time in terms of when they they start cutting um, that's mm. going to that's going to probably come as a surprise and so we think that they're going to remain they're going to retain their hawkish tilt until they don't need to anymore until they're clearly confident that the risks of keeping interest rates where they are is actually that inflation will undershoot their target um, look that still seems like a long way away from where we are today mm, but you can still pencil in cuts in August. Yeah, so the reason for our call in August is, is for one, we think inflation will be, will be back in the, the target band and the unemployment rate will be at 5% and pushing higher and the output gap will is going to be very negative on our forecast. Look, that's essentially the key for or the, the requirement for core disinflation. At the moment across the economy, we're seeing a very strong supply side growth. A lot of that reflects migration, but also the unwind of some of the, the constraints we've seen through the COVID period. And so with, with su- 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 the economy's supply capacity expanding at a time where demand is, a res- is restrained, a lot of those capacity pressures that flow through into to price pressures and inflation are fading too. So we, that, that is when we think the Reserve Bank will be in a position to cut, but we don't think they're going to foreshadow that and probably will remain pretty hawkish in February. Henry Russell, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 